I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning and welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with Carl Quintanilla and John Fort. Today, stocks are bouncing higher this morning after new lows on the year for the S&P and Dow with the Nasdaq. Well, it's outperforming for a change. Top gainers helping the index higher, beating down names like Lucid, DocuSign, Zscaler, NVIDIA. That said, still some recession warnings on the street. Here is Ark Invest, Kathy Wood, talking her outlook earlier this morning on Squawk Box. We believe we are in a recession. Uh, the durable goods orders we just saw, uh, uh, really we're seeing the strength there because of activity being attracted to the U.S., a flight to safety. That's why our dollar has been going up as well. Uh, nonetheless, we think we are in a recession. Though she, guys, has conviction to pick up more of those beaten down names in the ARC fund, like Roku and some others, for a number of reasons. She thinks that inflation will or has already peaked. Employment is lagging. And she said this to us before as well, guys. The street is just so bearish. You can't argue with that. The VIX this morning, John, above 30. Some say, though, that you need to see the VIX hold above 30 for at least a few consecutive days if you want to use it as an indicator to get back in. Uh, Gunjan Banerjee at the Wall Street Journal, friend of the show, had a piece a couple days ago about buying the dip and how that hasn't worked for retail investors. Kathy Wood, queen of buying the dip. I mean, the, the reasons change, but she's always, Carl, buying more of what she's already got. I mean, that's yeah. the move. That, I mean, that's, just, that's just the move. It hasn't worked for retail so far, but maybe that turns around, you know, maybe. Uh, maybe. She's definitely, as you say, I've been buying uh, more uh, of NVIDIA, uh, more DNA, and uh, is clearly convinced, guys, that we're going to be getting the a series of at least monthly declines in CPI, which if we keep getting a steady series of them, maybe you do wind up to a back a year-on-year CPI back to four or five by the middle of next year. And as she's been saying for months now, guys, uh, perhaps some deflationary forces. I'm interested to see what it's going to look like when she starts putting money to work in private markets, guys. Um, Of course, it is a lagging indicator, but those valuations that we have been talking about so much have really come down. Have they come down far enough? Where is she going to put that money? Is it more software names, Um, perhaps newer industries? That'll be interesting. And I think we're going to talk about that later on in the show as well, Carl. All right. For more on these markets and a potential recession, Cambria Investment Management's Meb Faber joins us today. Meb, I wonder, you know, just talking about some of the oversold conditions, certainly the 10-day AD line, uh, you think we're ripe for a bounce? And how long-lasting might that be? You know, um, I would love to come on this show one day, one day in the future, and say I'm a romping, stomping bull. Um, Unfortunately, that day is not yet today. Um, if you look at our models, the ones that can be tactical in the U.S. stock market, they're as bearish as they can be. Um, you know, the two main pillars we look at, value on one side, stocks are still expensive. You know, they're not as crazy as they were in January, but they're still on the expensive side, particularly if inflation sticks around and we can come back to that. But then also on the trend side, U.S. markets and almost every market in the world, honestly, uh, is in a downtrend now. You put those two things together, you get a lot of volatility when the market is in a downtrend. So the vast majority of the big up and down days occur when the market is already in an established downtrend. And if you miss both of those, we published some research on this years ago, you actually end up in a much better place uh, avoiding the 10 best and worst days 
because they tend to cluster together, these like volatility gremlins. So usually it's better to sit out and wait for a, a better time. So if the multiples gotten crushed because the market came uh, to Jesus on rates, do you think they're going to come to Jesus on earnings uh, once Q3 starts to print? The, the thing about when you mention the rates and, and its close cousin inflation, you know, we did a tweet the beginning of the year that was very unpopular. We talked about it, said, look, historically speaking, when inflation's this high, uh, these long-term PE ratios, they're down about half of, of from where we were at the beginning of the year, or excuse me, about half from where we are today uh, and, and much further from the beginning of the year. So yes, we've fallen 20%. This is a top three worst year ever for 6040 if we close today in the last 100 years. The other two were in the Great Depression. It doesn't feel like a warm, fuzzy place, right? The average allocation portfolio is probably down 20%. But the thing is, it can get worse. That's the thing the 6040 global allocation investors don't understand. It can get a lot worse. And so uh, the problem is, if inflation sticks around, even if it goes back down to six, five, four, the average multiple is low teens. And if we're in the uh, mid to high 20s right now, you can see how there's, there's a long way to go. Meb, I want to go back to what you said about stocks being expensive. Stocks are expensive, assuming what about 2023 revenue and earnings and beyond? Market cap weighted. And so you're right. When you say stocks, it doesn't mean everything. Um, I, I can say I'm a romping, stomping bull on value stocks. A lot of the quants, the nerds like me, come out and say, look, there's this historic spread between the cheap stuff and the expensive. Um, it's at levels not just in the U.S., but around the world, uh, close to we've never seen before, uh, which is great. Anytime you get in that like top 10, top 5 percentile, it's usually a good time. Doesn't mean it can't get worse, but usually a good time particularly if inflation sticks around or stickier, some of the best investments during the 1970s, during the 1940s, places you could hide out were value stocks. Mm -hmm. If you look abroad, by the way, some of these foreign developed and emerging market countries are, are have about a 7% dividend yield plus on some of these now, so are looking extremely attractive. So what is the effect in all of this? And, and are you looking at the effect of housing costs? And I mean both surging rents and higher mortgage rates uh, on how wealthy the consumer feels and then how much money there is to spend on, when it comes to just discretionary spending that fuels the economy and a lot of these revenues. This, this is a little close, uh, close to home because uh, we're getting ready to sign a new office lease close to the beach, but I was told we can't sign it until Mercury's out of retrograde. So guys, we got about four more days. I live in LA, so this is like, this is kind of normal. Um, but uh, that was my argument. I said, you know, we're entering a recession. This should be cheaper than it looks, but it's still expensive. Look, I don't know. Um, I think uh, housing obviously has had a, a magnificent run, um, similar to a lot of things. The US dollar has been an absolute wrecking ball. It feels like it's moving things off the rails all around the world. And by the way, that's historically, if the US dollar is about a 20% overvalued on a purchasing power basis versus much of the world, including Europe and particularly Japan. Historically, that's been a big tailwind for foreign stock investing from the U.S. standpoint over the course of the next three, five, 10 years. Um, so it's, it's been a headwind, going, a headwind in the past, tailwind going forward. Um, but, but a lot of these things that have simply moved up so long, often it takes time to digest. Uh, I hope housing comes down. It's expensive here for me in uh, mm -hmm. California. Yeah, me too. In San Francisco. I like that one. Mercury's in retrograde, Meb. Um, okay, let me just present the other side of this. 
if you do come on one day, Meb, and you are a stomping bull in your words, is that an indication that you're too late? I mean, that was exactly Kathy Wood's point. When others are fearful, you should be getting in. It seems kind of like a peak moment here. How much lower do you think we could go? Why don't you think that this might be a good opportunity if you're willing to hold for at least a few years? I think that's fair. Um, I think for the vast majority of longtime investors, I've actually been saying this on Twitter for a while and have been uh, wrong depending on who you ask, but I say I love it that my uh, retirement accounts just dollar cost average into emerging market stocks. I could not be happier if they just keep going down. Um, and for the long-term investor, 10, 15, 20 plus years, awesome. Just dollar cost average away, keep investing. The problem with most people, as we know, is that time horizon only exists in theory. Uh, when it comes to how your behavior is going to be, come into the year, come next year, um, I, I think it's really hard. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's two camps. Just go ahead, put it in, dollar cost average, and the other is simply wait for the trend to, to uh, turn. And most of the trend followers know you get similar returns to buy and hold, if not better. Uh, you never pick the tops and the bottoms, though, and you're often wrong um, at turning points, but usually mm -hmm. you get the, the meat of the move right, uh, which is really all that matters with the long term. So you do like value stocks, and I wonder what you consider to be a value stock these days in tech. I mean, traditionally, we've thought of the IBMs, the Oracles, the HPs, but there's kind of a new class, right, as we've seen these valuations come down. Meta, Adobe, PayPal, those are looking kind of value-ish. What do you like here? Yeah, so, I mean, if you look back at the long history of sectors, we try to be agnostic. I don't try to get too excited about utilities or tech or whatever it may be. And they go through periods. Tech at one period got to almost uh, you know, a third of the S&P 500. In other periods, it's low. Um, if Same thing for energy, on and on. And so over the past few years, tech was the darling. What's interesting, so we have three shareholder yield ETFs, so value style funds. Um, the, U the US has a very low tech weighting, but the emerging markets has a very high tech weighting, uh, which is always surprising to me. And it has the other areas you would expect for value, such as energy and industrial and materials. Um, but emerging markets have been so beaten down that tech is, is um, you know, a, a big part of the portfolio. So um, within the U.S., it's, it's not there yet. But uh, if we continue this move down, I would be really surprised if we didn't start adding uh, to a big tech exposure in the coming months. Hmm. Well, we definitely know when we're having you back, Meb, and that's when Mercury exits retrograde, I guess. October 2nd. Great to see you. All right, guys. Bye. <laughs> October 2nd. So okay, much. well. Put it in the calendar. Um, meanwhile, if you're thinking of putting your money to work, as we've been talking about, check out communication services. Dom Chu joins us with a breakdown of some cheap names to keep an eye on. Dom follows our discussion very nicely. Where's a the value? Absolutely, Deirdre. To, 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 to Meb Faber's point, a, a lot of times many, many investors like to look towards factors and, and the combination of factors that maybe kind of yell out, hey, this is a value type situation. Well, yesterday we looked at technology sector stocks that were trading below the industry or sector multiple when it comes to price to forward earnings, those earnings expectations over the next year. Today, we're going to look at comm services. Now, if you take a look at the comm services sector versus the Invesco QQQ Trust and the Spider S&P 500 ETF, it has been a big underperformer. And many of those mega cap technology names are the reason why. So if you watch that, then take a look at some of the valuations in the sector overall. The communication services sector has been beaten up so much that it now trades at the lowest price to earnings ratio on a forward basis that it has since the depths of the pandemic back in 2020. So it currently trades it's right around 14 times 
next year's expected or anticipated earnings. And that puts you kind of right at the same levels we were during the depths of the pandemic. So within that in mind, 14 is the multiple for the overall sector. Which names trade at a discount to that 14 times forward earnings? 11 names in the sector, according to FactSet, do fit that particular bill. Among those 11 names are names that you are familiar with. Meta Platforms, just about 12 and a half, 13 times forward earnings. Paramount, Global, 10.7 times. Verizon, 7.5. And, and then Lumen Technologies and AT&T both traded roughly six times forward earnings. So as traders and investors look towards where you can find value, this is one of the factors they will look at, maybe an initial screen, maybe in combination with others, but keep an eye on those particular names. And John, when it comes down to it, if you look at those value names in the communication services sector, many of them are established ones out there. And by the way, if you're interested in which the other 11 names are, just check out my Twitter feed at The Domino. I posted the rest of them up there, five of them here, the rest of them up on my Twitter feed. At The Domino, we'll check it out. You got Tom, it. Thanks. Speaking of cheap tech, 2022 weighing heavily on IPOs of the past and, well, if there were any of the present, nearly 90% of companies that went public last year currently trading below their offer prices. That's according to data from DealLogic. So when will it be safe for private tech names looking to hit the market? Let's bring in Zillow co-founder, former CEO Spencer Raskoff for a closer look. Um, there's actually a lot to talk about with you, Spencer. I actually want to start with real estate because I just called out Zillow there. Um, you know, you were involved with uh, OfferPad coming to the public markets. And I'm curious about the impact of this quickly slowing housing market, rising rates on consumer behavior when it comes to retail investors and uh, when it comes to some of these companies. What are you seeing? Well, unfortunately, I think the housing market's a little bit worse than most people realize, because when you look at data like Case Shiller, that tends to be a paired sale methodology, which means Case Shiller looks at homes that sold in the period, say, last month, and then it looks back at when the last time those homes sold three, five, ten years ago, and it calculates the delta. But if you look at the median value of all homes in a geography, that's actually declining in, in many parts of the country. So housing is very weak. That's to be expected. The Fed wants this when they raised rates from, you know, or when mortgage rates went from 3% up to the mid sixes on their way to the mid sevens. This is what you'd expect would happen. And it is absolutely happening. So housing is slowing rapidly. Uh, however, homes are still selling pretty quickly. And this is a bit of a mind bender. I think some people have a hard time wrapping their mind around. The reason for this is there's very limited inventory because of mortgage rate lock in. So if you bought your home, Two years ago, four years ago, 10 years ago, you probably have a two, three, four percent mortgage. And it's very difficult for you to list your home now and buy at a six or seven percent mortgage. So there are very few sales. There's not much inventory. Those homes are selling quickly. But the median home value is probably declining in lots of parts of the country. All right. That's the state of real estate listings. Let's talk about stock listings. Yeah. Uh, those are there's limited inventory of those, too, but uh, uh, of new ones. Uh, but but for different reasons, um, when do you expect that to shift? And uh, what are you doing when it comes to your own investments and, and SPACs? You dabbled in that. Yeah. So the IPO window now has been closed for 238 days. We haven't had a tech IPO greater than 50 million in 238 days. Uh, we've had one tech IPO this year versus 124 last year. So the window is slammed shut. I think it's going to stay closed until at least Q1, probably Q2, or maybe even Q3. And that's a pretty bearish point of view. But when you hear the Fed indicating that they're probably going to be raising another 50 to 100 plus basis points, that's going to slow the economy significantly. 
And you have to remember, like we talk about the IPO window and IPO backlog as if it's some discrete thing. But really, the IPO market is just a, a, a little microcosm of the broader equity market. So look at the comps, John. So online retail down 70% last 12 months. Online advertising down 55% last 12 months. Digital marketplace is down 40%. So when you've got these public comps that have come way down, public market investors looking at new issuances, looking at IPOs, they expect a discount to those public comps because they're taking a risk buying a new issuance, a company that hasn't been public previously. And so when public comps are down that much, the IPO window is going to be slammed shut because companies are, aren't, don't want to sell into that buzzsaw. Yeah. So unfortunately, look for it to stay closed at least until next year. Well, to that point, Spencer, you are seeing some uh, private companies take down their internal valuations, like an Instacart, which reportedly is still getting set to IPO later this year. So what will it take to open back up? Someone's got to go first. It's got to be a big name. Is that going to be Instacart? Yeah. So, I mean, I hope Instacart gets public this year. I'm pretty skeptical that they're going to get out this year. So in a normal market, you would look for, like, what does it take to be a good IPO candidate? You'd look for a company's ability to forecast generally high growth, generally revenue scale, at least 100 million of revenue. In this market, you also need profitability or nearly profitable, especially unit level economics, unit level profitability, but ideally real profitability and a bigger market cap, at least a 2 billion plus market cap, and then a marquee must own name with retail interest. So Instacart checks a lot of those boxes, but very little happens, a very little equity issuance, even in a good market happens between Thanksgiving and the end of the year. So if Instacart's going to get out, they have a very short window here, really just a couple weeks to get out before Thanksgiving, and I'm pretty skeptical. Uh, but what will reopen the market, I believe, sometime next year are going to be companies that meet these descriptions that I've just given. So forecastable, high growth, um, but most importantly, profitable. And that's that's new. We certainly haven't seen that in the IPO market for a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, that's gonna, we were talking about what is what a dramatic change in narrative that would be. Spencer, to take you back to housing, you know, a lot of economists and uh, J.P. Morgan desks like that are using Zillow data to suggest that shelter CPI is going to start to moderate and actually decline. Do you believe that, or is the the uh, dynamic of high mortgage rates going to force people to rent and keep rents relatively robust? Well, I believe it on the for sale side. I believe that home values, as I said, are, are declining in lots of parts of the country. And so that's going to reduce the value of homes. But affordability is going up or is getting worse because higher mortgage rates. So I think you're exactly right, Carl, that, uh, you know, just to say home values are worth 5% less in Los Angeles, that doesn't mean housing costs have gone down by 5%. On the contrary, housing costs probably went up because mortgage rates are higher than they were before. So I, I, it, it's... Um, you know, the impact of housing on CPI is 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 really a lagging indicator because you've got mortgage rates working against you as those tick up, even as it reduces the price of homes at the same time. So, Spencer, uh, one more on OfferPad then. Spoke to Keith Raboy last week about the iBuying model. We got derailed, but I am genuinely interested in what happens in a downturn. Did the team at OfferPad stress for 6.5% plus mortgage rates? What happens to that long-term debt if interest rates are going to rise even further, just walk me through what happens with this kind of model. Sure. Yeah, so uh, uh, we got derailed. That was that was a, a good a good euphemism, Deirdre. You did a great job in that interview, by the way. It was, Thank it was well you. done. Um, uh, look, uh, OfferPad's been a very frustrating situation. I'm a shareholder through the SPAC. The company has performed really well. It's exceeded its SPAC projections, but digital real estate has just been thrown <laughs> thrown by the wayside by the public markets, and that's been frustrating. 
Um, what happens to these types of companies, Offerpad, Opendoor, and others, through a downturn is if they manage their book well, I think the value that they provide to a seller is increased because what they provide is certainty of a transaction to a home seller. And in a down market or a flat market, like we're in in some markets right now, that's even more valuable to a seller. So these companies should be able to do well through downturn as long as they're well managed and they manage their book well. Um, so, you know, I think um, that having been said, it's going to be a, a couple quarters while they're in this penalty box as housing has just been thrown aside and they're going to have to buckle down and, and just try to keep performing. And hopefully over time, if they're patient, the stocks will recover. All right. Spencer Raskoff, uh, lots of good intelligence there. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And if you're looking for guidance amid the volatility, do not miss CNBC's Delivering Alpha Conference now just 24 hours away. Leslie Picker joins us now with a preview. Leslie, it is finally almost here. We're all very excited. It's finally almost here, and it's going to be a, a very busy day. It's hard to think of a better time to convene top investing minds from all different strategies, all different asset classes, to help us make some sense of the recent market volatility. In the tech space in particular, I'll be joined by two top-tier growth investors familiar to the tech tech audience, Orlando Bravo of Toma Bravo and Bill Ford of General Atlantic. Blackstone President John Gray and Whitney Wolf Hurd, the CEO of Bumble, will be speaking about their partnership as well. In the liquid markets, we have firesides scheduled with Duquesne's Stan Druckenmiller, Citadel's Ken Griffin, and PIMCO's Dan Iveson to get a sense of the up-to-the-minute perspective on the market environment. And of course, with the midterm elections actually six weeks away today, uh, we'll get a sense of the political and regulatory landscape with Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyemo and Virginia Governor and former Carlisle co-CEO Glenn Youngkin. John Fort, of course, will be closing out the day with a macro panel comprised of Afsana Beschloss of Rock Creek and Julian Salisbury, who runs Goldman Sachs's asset management. As Deirdre said, the event is less than 24 hours away now, but I believe there are still tickets available. If you'd like to attend or get more information about the event, please visit DeliveringAlpha.com or their should be a QR code on your screen. I don't see it popping up right now, but uh, deliveringalpha.com should give you all the information you need. I'll send it back to you. All right. Uh, maybe I'm sure there'll be another chance to put the QR code up on the screen. Leslie, thank Love you. A good it's going to be exciting code. tomorrow. <laughs> yes, uh, Leslie Picker. Still ahead, we'll get a check on the chips as some warn that Nvidia is stuck in a valley, and domestic manufacturers ask where are the workers. Big show ahead. Tech checks just getting started. NVIDIA. The stock is up more than 2% this morning, but the chipmaker has been facing an historic downturn. Investors saw a dip like this back in 2018, actually. But here's what it looks like if we zoom out to today. The Valley, 
It is steep, down nearly 60% this year, and trading at lows not seen since March 2021. Most of the cost pressures come from a mix of overambition and a little bad luck. Developing the most advanced gaming chips on the market means making them larger and more difficult to afford. Building new chips for hyperscalers builds data center growth. That's up 60% year-over-year last quarter, but it does eat away at its cash pile. Plus, GPUs they had been selling to Ethereum miners. We know what's happened after the merge. They have become worthless since that switch to proof of stake. The question becomes, will bets like a library of digital models, a.k.a. NVIDIA's Omniverse, be enough to build a chip maker back up? Um, guys, this comes from a really great piece from Ben Thompson's Stratry newsletter. Um, and the whole idea here is that NVIDIA has built itself into an industry leader, John, and they are gambling. They're taking some big chances and putting a lot of capital behind it for things that maybe gamers don't want now. They don't know they want it yet. Um, so if you think that NVIDIA can kind of come out of this valley again, it could be a really good time to pick up shares in this company. Well, NVIDIA has got to be so much more than gaming, so much more than graphics, Right, even more than data center at this point to reach that next level, Carl. And Jensen over there has done a great job of you know, leading this company from being sort of an Intel-dominated also-ran into being a giant in the industry. Once that ARM acquisition got scuttled, I think there are continuing questions about how it becomes more of a platform driven not just by the chip cycles, but by software as well. And so that narrative will have to emerge in this environment as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, people tried to argue earlier in the year, look, maybe if they just flush out the gaming channel, they can reset like they did in 2018. But the workloads have changed so much, John, that it's not just about having the best chips. You've got to have build-outs beyond that. That's clearly what Jensen's been working on. Yep. And speaking of chips and build-outs, domestic manufacturers seeing a big windfall from the Chips Act. But where are the workers? Christina Partsinevelis is live from Intel's headquarters or at least one of its facilities in Chandler, Arizona, I should say, joins us with more. Christina? Yeah, I want to focus on one part of those workers. Hispanics make up or make up the second largest ethnic group in the United States, but they're severely underrepresented in science, technology, engineering, and math jobs, like uh, 8%, actually, 8% of STEM jobs, like these technician roles. That's the reason why I'm in this white suit right now, because I have to be cleaned before you go into the fab. But finding that talent is just so difficult, especially when companies from global foundries to TSMC are spending billions of dollars on at least 13 fabs in the United States, which could potentially create anywhere between 40 and 50 thousand new jobs in niche fields just in the next three years. But finding technicians, finding engineers, finding experts is not easy. And that is why we came to Intel, who has paired up with community colleges to find that underrepresented talent and fast. 10 days of training for four hours a day, and they'll be able to develop into being a entry-level technician. We spoke with one Latina student who was a stay-at-home mom of three, and then she entered uh, that Intel program and has now been offered a job here. Her words on switching and entering this field. Just the word semiconductor, sometimes it's a little intimidating, uh, but it's not, it's it's actually basic stuff, right? Like it's it's not super hard training or something that's out of this world. It's just tools, right? 
all tools that are used to make the chips that power all of the electronics we use. And it's not just Intel. You've got Semi Foundation, Global Foundries, Micron, that are all collaborating with schools to find the talent they so desperately need. John? Actually, I'll take it. Uh, it's such an important question because it's a national security issue and yet also a labor issue as well. Uh, fascinating. Uh, thanks for that, Christina Parts Nevelos. If you think we're nearing a bottom, strap in. According to our next guest, why he says things could fall even lower and how you might trade it. After the break, stay with us. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa. Uh, John is on assignment for the rest of the hour. The Bulls did make a run here at the Open. Uh, we're just about uh, half past the hour here. We got to 3,700 on the S&P, or awfully close, uh, but have since reversed as yields have uh, turned upwards once again. Let's get a news update here with Bertha Coombs. Hey, Bertha. Hey, how are you, Carl? Here's what's happening at this hour. The surge in home prices? cooling down. The S&P Case-Shiller Index shows prices rose 15.8% in the 12 months through July. That was more than two percentage points less than the previous month, and it's the biggest one-month drop in the index's history. Consumer confidence is up for a second month in a row, thanks in part to falling gas prices. The recent gains follow three straight months of declines as inflation surged. Walmart is teaming up with a fertility startup to offer family-building benefits to its employees. Services will include fertility, surrogacy, and adoption support. And for the first time, Elon Musk tops the Forbes 400 list of richest Americans. He's also the first person in the annual rankings history to hit a quarter trillion dollars in personal wealth. Mark Zuckerberg, meantime, lost more than half of his fortune over $75 billion. He fell from third richest American all the way down to number 11. Overall, Forbes says the 400 richest Americans lost a half trillion dollars over the last year. It's the first drop for the super rich since the Great Recession. A lot of small violins playing for them. <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth, Bertha. <laughs> tiny, tiny violin there. Uh, meanwhile, stocks looking to snap a five-day losing streak as investors continue to search for a bottom. But our next guest says strap in, forecasting tech could fall even further despite historically low multiples. Madrona Venture Group Managing Director Matt McElwain joins us now. Matt, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Um, our Thanks, first guest, Matt Faber, he was similarly downbeat, thinks that there's more room to go on the downside when we do hit that bottom, what are you looking for as an indication of that? And then secondly, what are you picking up? Yeah, I think we are going to need another quarter or two before we hit that bottom. And the biggest reason is, is because the sort of operational tightening and the full implications of the recession haven't been felt yet in these stocks. Yes, these stocks are all down in many cases below you know, the five-year average of, of SaaS multiples. I'm thinking mostly about tech stocks and SaaS multiples here, uh, but they're not at their bottoms yet, in my view, because I think we're going to see a tough Q3 print, and then there's going to be a lot of uncertainty going into Q4 about whether or not you're going to have the annual budget flush. So I'd like to see those two uh, quarters play out before we go and, uh, and look into any kind of uh, uh, buying. 
Right. And in terms of the names you're looking for, and I know I, I've been reading your note, MongoDB, CrowdStrike, Zoom Info. You said these are great companies at good prices right now, but they're going to be great companies at great prices. That timing, though, a quarter or two, what does that assume, that the Fed is done hiking and pausing? Yeah, so I would say, so these are companies that were great prices at rich prices. They're great companies at rich prices a year ago. They are great co companies at good prices today. They've executed all very well. Uh, but they are going to be, uh, in my opinion, great companies at better prices in the future. And there's a couple of dynamics going on. I mean, you, you, re you reference the interest rates, but we've also got to look at, you know, are they able to uh, outperform the expectations. I mean, all of these companies have been basically beating and raising consistently, and they've been trying to now guide more cautiously into the next couple of quarters. I think those quarters are going to be tougher. I mean, the indications I'm seeing is that, you know, Q3 is going to be quite a tough quarter. And the challenge is that you might be able to meet your revenue numbers, but it's your bookings and your billings that are going to be the pressure. And so you've got this tension between wanting to invest in the future, hire the sales capacity to keep selling, but need to get more sales productivity out of your current sales organization. And I think that we're going to lose out on the side of being a little bit lower on productivity and not nearly enough in terms of, uh, uh, of the results on the top line over the next quarter or two. Hey, Matt, if that's true, then why some argue, uh, was pre-announced season relatively light, or at least limited to certain sectors like, say, chemicals and industrials? Well, I think on the tech side, you know, you're, you're betting on growth. And so I think people in the tech world started cutting back in Q2. And it was hard to know how much of their customers, their buyers, were, you know, outside of the tech world, you know, and other other verticals were going to cut back. And I think that they're seeing that now in Q3 as everybody tightens up. I mean, you know, the, the word, you know, on the street here in Seattle is that, you know, Microsoft's cutting back their travel and expense budget 75 percent as they went into their new fiscal year. So you take a data point like that and you hear a lot of other similar data points. And whether you're a tech company or you're a non-tech company, I think people are spending less. Apply that to software now. And I'm hearing that sales cycles are stretching out. There's more pressure on renewals. People are trying to consolidate the number of seats or the rate at which they're growing and expanding. And that's going to be the near-term problem. Why I'm optimistic in the medium term, though, is because technology is fundamentally deflationary. And these business processes that are digitized and automated are going to help companies, you know, whether they're the companies on the security side like CrowdStrike that automates security or MongoDB or even a bigger company like a ServiceNow. I mean, it could be choppy waters for the, and I think it will be choppy waters for the next quarter or two. But come to the early to mid part of next year, I think a lot of these companies are going to see that they've been able to get the longer sales cycles absorbed and be executing well again and growing into uh, 2023. Yeah, yeah. Well, so definitely ServiceNow was one of the first to warn us that's the environment we were heading into. You're also no. watching sort of the spread between public valuations and late stage private. What's that telling you right now? Well, what that's telling me right now is it's, it's better to buy public companies. Uh, you know, the public companies have adjusted again, you know, back to below those five, uh, the five year multiple, you know, the SAS multiple averages about eight X forward 12 months revenue. Um, and we're down at the six X level. We were at 15 a year ago, just to show the contrast there. And the private companies, I mean, the companies that raised money as so-called unicorns, you know, one to four billion dollar range, you know, the kind of newer unicorns on average, those companies have less than 20 million in revenue. So just think about the you know, 25 to 50x revenue multiples that many of those later stage private companies are sitting on. 
So we still see that there's going to be a lot of adjustment in later stage private valuations. And on top of that, a lot of the players that were setting the price mm. in later stage private valuations over the last couple of years have now moved away from that market. And so I think it's going to be a tough time uh, unless you execute extremely well as a late stage private company for valuations in that care sector. And the last thing, of course, is that there's not going to be any IPOs anytime in the near future. Yeah. You also have to execute well if you're an investor. To that point, Kathy Wood this morning announcing her venture fund, which will allow sort of ordinary investors to invest in private companies. What do you make of that? What does it mean for traditional venture capital, somewhere you operate? And what do you make of that two and three quarters of a percent management fee? Well, you know, everybody's got to, you know, negotiate their own management fee. So I'll, I'll, I won't comment on that. What I will say, though, is that there is incredible innovation happening in venture. And if you have access to the people and the insights and the innovations that are out there uh, and you can get in early, you know, at lowish valuations and help build these companies. I mean, think about some of the next gen, you know, machine learning companies. You know, you were talking about NVIDIA earlier. And I think that we, they didn't talk enough about the potential of NVIDIA as a major, major player in machine well, learning. And, and, you know, and so I think there's a long, long way to go there, both at the enabling layers, like, you know, companies like yeah. Hugging Face and OctoML and others, as well as in the intelligent application space where you've right. got companies like Parity and Highspot and others that are doing amazing things um, as intelligent you know, machine yeah. learning enabled applications. And giving us some good names, Matt. Thanks for being with us. Matt McElwain, Madrona Ventures. Thank you. Thanks, Deidre. Still to come this morning, we'll take a look at America's wealthiest consumers as they lose trillions amid the broad sell-off. We've got the latest on that next. Also, as we go to break, throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, we are celebrating our CNBC teammates and contributors. Here's CNBC associate producer Karina Hernandez telling her story. I am a first-generation Mexican-American, and I am so proud of that. The reason I am where I am today is because of the sacrifices my parents made to move to this country to provide a better future for my sister and me. It's those sacrifices that give me the drive to excel in my career and make their sacrifices worth it. My advice to other Latinos is echale ganas, which means to give it all you've got and don't wait for others to take a chance on you. Put yourself out there and take a chance on yourself first. If you have felt some pain as stocks sold off, you're not alone. Stock market losses this year have cut American wealth by nearly $10 trillion. Robert Frank has some more on that for us this morning. Hey, Robert. Good morning, Carl. Well, from 401ks to family offices, shareholders have lost trillions in dollars of wealth this year from those market declines. New data from the Federal Reserve showing that the value of Americans' holdings of corporate equities and mutual fund shares falling by $9.2 trillion. That's as of July 1st. You add in the declines since that time, probably brings it close to the $10 trillion mark. Now, the top, they have lost the most since they own the most stocks. The top 10% of Americans saw their stock wealth drop by over $8 trillion last this year. The top 1% losing $5 trillion in stock wealth. That's about a 20% drop in keeping with the market. Rising home prices have helped a bit, but not nearly enough to offset the stock wealth declines. Real estate holdings up $3 trillion this year. That's less than a third the value of the stock losses. 
And the big question is when this negative wealth from stocks starts to affect the consumer spending of the wealthy, the total wealth of the top 10% still up $9 trillion since 2019 before the pandemic. So that financial cushion is still large, D, but it is shrinking fast. Yeah, a lot of large numbers there. Uh, thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Still to come, a check on crypto lending as eight states crack down on a key player in the space. And Bitcoin it is showing signs of life above 20K. More market action still ahead. Stay with us. news in the embattled crypto lending space as Voyager Digital inks a deal with Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX. Eight states announced cease and desist orders for another name in the space. Kay Bruni is on top of all of the headlines. I didn't even mention half of them. There's so much going on this morning, Dee. Let's start with FTX. After multiple rounds of bidding, FTX has won the battle to buy Voyager out of bankruptcy. I'm told by a source that the crypto exchange Binance was the runner-up here. The deal is valued at $1.4 billion. Most of that is for Voyager's assets, and it marks Sam Bankman-Fried's latest crypto bailout this year and his second attempt at buying Voyager. The lender snubbed a joint offer from Bankman-Fried's companies, Alameda and FTX, back in July, calling it a lowball bid dressed up as a white knight rescue. Bankman-Fried told me in an interview that he was surprised by that and said it was because there were no consulting fees involved. Voyager was one of a handful of companies that froze customer funds and filed for bankruptcy this summer. Another one of those companies, Celsius, this morning announcing that its CEO, Alex Mashinsky, is stepping down amid its own bankruptcy hearings. Mashinsky in a statement saying he's, quote, very sorry about the difficult financial circumstances members of our community are facing. Regulators are paying very close attention to this space. Uh, late yesterday, we also reported that eight states are bringing actions against the lending platform Nexo for offering unregistered Interest-bearing accounts, those offered 36% interest. In some cases, Nexo says that it's working with regulators and really tried to separate itself from some of the other lenders. It didn't offer, offer uh, uncollateralized loans or freeze withdrawals and says it had no exposure to the now defunct cryptocurrency Terra and Luna. This morning, as if we don't have enough headlines in crypto, Nexo, that same company, announcing it was acquiring a stake in a chartered U.S. bank, Summit National Bank, which would let Nexo offer bank accounts directly to clients. We'll see how regulators feel about that. And D, one more headline that I know, we were I'm just talking about. Uh, Brett Harrison, FTX's U.S. CEO, or the president of FTX, stepping down. He says, I'm reading a tweet here, but he says over the next couple months he'll be transferring his responsibilities, moving into more of an advisory role of the company. But Alex Mashinsky, Brett Harris. Yeah. And, and in the past, Binance, right? It's hard yeah. to keep these U.S. Uh, leaders of the exchanges. Yeah. Thank you, Kate Rooney. Thanks, D. Carl? Ah, that is a lot, guys. Meantime, uh, Dow's gone negative, down about 35 points. NASDAQ's still in the green, but well off the highs of the morning with gains of about half a percent. We're back in a moment. Tesla, one of the top gainers on the NASDAQ this morning, up about 2.5%. And it's still one of our Convest CEO, Kathy Wood's top picks. Have a listen. We're pretty excited about uh, the, the next five years. Uh, I think this year there will be uh, almost 8 million EVs sold around the world. We think that goes to 60 million in five years. And we think Tesla's in the driver's seat. 
I mean, Carl, if you take a look at Tesla's performance over the last 12 months, it's up 12.5%. All the other mega caps, save Apple, are significantly lower in that time frame. Yeah, and we got we paid a lot of attention to this headline out of Electric today saying they're asking workers for help on the prospect of very high delivery volume toward the end of the quarter. So we're going to watch uh, Tesla. Huge day for EVs, all kinds of news. And even though, D, we opened up with only one name red on the S&P, we've given a lot back and the Dow's mm-hmm. down 42. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.